Hello and welcome to our FIS podcast, Castaway, keeping you in the know on the shipping and commodity world where we're all at home quarantined. We know that the working and business has changed dramatically in the past couple of months, so developing a range of resources to help keep you up to date on everything happening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website, www.freightinvestorservices.com, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. FIS is fully functional. Every broker, every office, and every team is ready to help you with pricing, research, and operational assistance. Hello, and welcome back again to our FIS podcast, Castaway. Uh, we're a man down this morning, uh, but we do have returning Alex and Tom all the way from Singapore. So thank you guys for joining me. Good morning. Morning, morning. So in a week that has passed, uh, we've had obviously the Black Lives Matter protests around the globe, which started in the US and has continued around in other cities, uh, much of the West. Um, several other countries are reporting days on end of uh, no new virus infections. And this is especially true of New Zealand, who've declared themselves virus free. So some good news there. But that's the week that we've kind of seen. But we've picked up on some news stories, as we have done the last few weeks that have caught our eye. And uh, Tom, why don't we start with you? And your news story this morning is on um, Hong Kong. Yes, it's um, a direct sort of a uh, consequence of the sort of heightening tensions between China uh, and uh, the rest of the world, but in this case, uh, particularly the US. Um, so HSBC came out last week and sort of declared themselves to be in favour or in support of the recent piece of legislation that's come out of Beijing regarding Hong Kong, which has caused the sort of latest spark of, um, of riots and, and uh, sort of anti-Chinese sentiment from the West, uh, but HSBC and Standard Chartered have come out and supported uh, supported that piece of legislation. And um, Mike Pompeo, uh, the US Secretary of State, has fairly uh, openly come out and criticised HSBC this morning, uh, accusing them of kowtowing to, uh, to Beijing uh, for the sake of corporate profits. Um, so it's an interesting one with HSBC. They're obviously, yeah, headquartered in, in the UK, same as Standard Chartered, but the vast majority of their profits are generated in, in Hong Kong and China. Um, so they're obviously stuck between a rock and a hard place, you could argue, um, with being a UK registered with UK leadership, uh, but still very, very much uh, beholden to China and the Chinese economy and therefore Chinese government. Um, so it's just a sort of a highlighting really of the, the difficulties that big corporations are going to have with trying to appease um, both sides of the argument, um, particularly companies that, that do have a lot of exposure to, to China. There aren't that many that are as exposed as HSBC are, to be honest, but a lot of shareholders now are starting to, to rumble that they're uneasy um, with uh, HSBC's stance currently. So Aviva, which is you know, one of the, the largest institutional shareholders in, in HSBC and Standard Charter, um, has has expressed its uh, disquiet um, at, at what's going on uh, and what HSBC's stance is. Um, there's rumblings in the government, uh, the UK government, uh, with regards to HSBC's stance, and, and it will be interesting to see how that plays out as a UK registered company. Um, so, so it's, yeah, it's it's uh, I think a very interesting sort of microcosm of of what I'm sure is being discussed in boardrooms around global corporates uh, around the world at the moment as to as to how they how they do try and 
appease both the US and, and China as, as this argument gets sort of worse and worse moving forward. The situation in Hong Kong has obviously been difficult with all this kind of new law coming in and there's other news stories talking about those financial institutions looking at moving away. I know that we discussed previously Singapore looking with hungry eyes at Hong Kong to try and take away its preeminence as a financial centre for a lot of, of Asia. Mm. Do you think that this kind of decision will quicken things in terms of, as you say, in terms of investors? Or if you throw into that mix as well, the political turmoil which could come at the end of this year with Brexit in the UK and the movement of HSBC's HQ out of the UK and their decision well, would it be in Hong Kong? Or well, I mean, one, one of the um, sort of criticisms of HSBC coming out of the UK this week has been that you know, when stuff happens in the UK that they don't like, they move the business to to HSBC to uh, sorry they move the business to to Hong Kong. Um, so as much as profits are generated and and, and whatever uh, in Asia that. They have they have sort of moved the base, as it were. Even even though technically they're still headquartered in the UK, they've moved the base. But it doesn't seem to be a reverser when things are not quite right in Hong Kong. Uh, there's still no movement back the other way. So I think that's going to be interesting to see how that develops at a political level, uh, because there's obviously huge amounts of political sway. Probably you know realistically. Uh, from a profits and, and, and balance sheet perspective, China is much more important. But the rule of law that it sort of is governed by as, as a UK headquartered business is, is the UK. So that, that's an interesting one. On the hastening of the move to Singapore or out of Hong Kong, I think what's been quite interesting to see this week um, is there's, a, there's an ETF, which is... Uh, it's called EWS. I can't remember what it stands for, I'm afraid, but it's essentially a Singapore-based ETF that is built up of banks and financial institutions that uh, are based in Singapore. And that has got aggressively bid up uh, by huge inflows of institutional money and retail money in, into that fund in the last couple of, in the last week or so, um, with a view that, you know, that preeminence of Hong Kong in the region as the sort of banker of Asia uh, is, is going to move away um, from Hong Kong and will move to Singapore. So that there's the, from the investment side, from the institutional money side, we are starting to see some sort of opinion being played out in, in the markets in that respect. So it's early days yet, but there's certainly um, movement that sort of reflects what we've discussed before. Yeah, because I guess in long-term planning, a lot of these financial institutions would be looking forward and gone. You had the declaration, which was signed between Britain and China in '97, which had its 50-year uh, expiry on it. You still had a good number of decades left under that uh, regime, which had the two systems and that kind of rule of law uh, and yeah. democracy in Hong Kong. The kind of change, which uh, we discussed it last week about the pulling back of US from foreign policy decisions and involving the world in China, I've seen this as... Well, we kind of posited that China's seen this as an opportunity for it to extend its world kind of power around things, that, that that kind of situation could be hurried up. And now board decisions could be taken a lot earlier about moving up. And that whole question of well, what happens when China takes control again of Hong Kong and the agreed rule of law isn't necessarily what is running things anymore. Yeah, uh, I think it, it's... Uh... 
it's interesting slash worrying uh, if you're a sort of com- uh, Western, for one of a better term, company exposed to the, the Asian and Chinese markets that has used Hong Kong as a base for the last however long. You've got some big decisions to make about whether you, you think it's a safe place, um, you know, physically and economically to be, to be based uh, over the, the short, medium and long term. Alex, why don't we move to you and your new story? You've got a German language piece on sure. the virus. So it was it's out of uh, the Spiegel this morning, and it's about the Institute for Economics and Peace and their Global Peace Index. And I don't think it's going to surprise anyone to say that economic unrest can often lead to social unrest. And obviously we are, you know, in pretty, uh, I don't want to use unprecedented times yet again for the middle of time, but we are in unprecedented times with, with the economic uh, markets and the economic situation. So the, the report just obviously, you know, it, it takes into account every single year uh, piece around the world. And this year they added an extra analysis of how coronavirus has affected peace. And obviously, I think it's obvious to all of us that we are, we're seeing social unrest directly as a result of the coronavirus. Um, and how this is going to pan out, we're, we're not entirely sure. But it, it's leading us in, in several different directions. And we're seeing the social unrest manifest into different aspects and picking up steam alongside other social aspects that that affect people. Um, does it lead to ultimately to change? Um, I don't know. Will it, will this social unrest disappear when when coronavirus disappears? Probably quite unlikely. But it's something that corporates and governments are going to have to take into account as we move forward through this virus and then out the other side. Yeah, one of the other interesting stories which gets linked to that is something ringing about um, Spain as a political. Uh, coalition, it's left-wing coalition, which has come in recently, positing uh, a form of universal basic income to kind of tackle some of those social issues. And another article in The Economist pointed towards that if you look at uh, the ability of, kind of Europe to redistribute wealth and its its Gini index, which is uh, the measure between of inequality, in effect, that it does a lot better than other areas, especially the United States. But for other measures, this, the kind of virus could have a bigger impact on those those areas than previous problems that it's had. And that you know, Spain's taken one decision, and as you say, what are the other countries going to do in terms of dealing with this social unrest? Well, I think it's going to particularly hit the third world hard because the cutbacks in aid for for development and you know the, the allocation of resources is really going to affect uh, the developed sorry the emerging markets and sort of poorer countries quite hard. just want to touch on something very briefly said about Spain, or maybe it's a bit of a personal gripe, but I think it does show that coalition governments, when under pressure, don't really work. And that Spain really struggled to get their decision-making right. And I, I firmly put a lot of that on the fact that they had a coalition government that was pulling them in several different directions. But that bit of a deviation. But <laughs> a bit of a deviation. We could delve into a political argument about Tom. I think you had something to say. Yeah, there. Tom, you were coming. Well, I, I was. I was going to say the article that I nearly uh, chose to talk about this week was um, about uh, Rishi Sunak uh, today stating that, or the Conservative Party stating that they are looking at dealing with uh, the current debt burden that's been taken on by the, the virus as essentially war debt uh, and paying it off over, you know a much, much longer time frame that would normally be considered for any government, let alone a Conservative government in the UK. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, a lot of how this pans out in, you know, in the UK and in our developed economies, without touching on what Alex just hit on with regards to the, the emerging markets, is going to come down to, um, you know, how economic policy and governments uh, treat 
the, the, the economic burden that has been poured upon them uh, by trying to fight this virus. The Conservatives are saying, you know, we, we are not going to you know, fiscally stringent in the same way that we have in the past. And coming off the back of some um, aggressive um, sort of um, economic management out of the back of the financial crisis, um, it, it, it seems clear that that is not going to be this, the same moving forward. Uh, and, you know, the burden of who pays for this over the next generation and generation and generation um, will obviously have a strong impact on how economic economies recover. Um, I think leading into what I know you're going to talk about, Chris, the, the, the UK government, current government got elected on sort of levelling up the playing field and and um, trying to decentralise the UK away from the London powerhouse and that being done through infrastructure projects. Um, and it, it seems that, you know, that is one of the ways that they are they're going to spend their way out of this problem by by big infrastructure projects within the UK um, and that's going to be done on borrowing so it, that is a sort of big removal from traditional conservative policy that is being forced by uh, the coronavirus um, so I, I think we are already already seeing governments um, change policy change traditional track uh, traditional sort of change their sort of traditional angles and traditional economic approaches uh, on the back of what, what the, the virus has, has sort of caused to happen. Uh, yeah. Alex wants to come in on Just, it. I mean, well, basically linking that before we just go into um, the other the next story. Uh, I mean, the, the report says that in 2019, the estimated economic cost of violence and conflict, social unrest, was $14.5 trillion dollars. So, I mean, that was a pretty hefty bill for 2019. It'll be interesting to see what the bill for 2020 is and, uh, and, and how the governments react to that. But uh, I'll leave it there. That, that's my story for the week. And uh, we will move on to you, Chris. Yeah, I mean, uh, if there are any millennials listening, then there's some more war debt fees pay off. So it took over 60 years for the last war debt to be paid off. So uh, unfortunately, you may be settled for some more for quite a while. Uh, but moving on, as the other two uh, indicated, onto my story of the week. And I've picked up one from The Economist, which is talking about problems for China's Belt Road Initiative. So for those who are unaware, obviously China has had a huge economic growth over several decades, and now it's looking to exert that, similar to what the US has done over under its Pax Americana, investment in developing countries around the world, and a lot of that has taken the form of uh, infrastructure spending. So uh, just over a year ago, you had a, a meeting of all the leaders who were involved uh, in the program from countries where China was going to invest. Uh, and actually, President Xi put that into the constitution. It's actually enshrined as part of, of their program, their political program. You know, a promise of hundreds of billions of, of dollars uh, of loans and of specific infrastructure projects. Um, but obviously, with the virus, with things being shut down, that has put a lot of these projects on hold or several of them have been scrapped and I've just got a few examples of, of some of the things which they have been invested in. So in February, Egypt has postponed indefinitely uh, its new uh, coal-fired power station, which is going to be the second largest in the world, uh, which was Chinese funded. Uh, Bangladesh has ceased its new coal power station as well, so Chinese funded as well. Uh, Pakistan has asked China for easier payments of its uh, $30 billion worth of power project money. Tanzania has cancelled $10 billion worth of a new port project. And I mean, you're seeing debts across the developing world, especially Africa. You know, they're going to need assistance in this to get out because a lot of the time they've used the sale of uh, products, produce, manufacture to be able to service a lot of this debt. 
and therefore increase their their ability to you know get these infrastructure projects bring that experience of countries who develop the technology to do it but now you can have a big problem economically for china as well as politically because you know this is in china constitution it's personally being put forward by president Xi, and you have uh, two problems you have to deal with this one if you reduce the amount that you're going to loan loan to them then you have economic problems in terms of how you service that debt uh, and those people in China in terms of balancing the budget and its own debt problems. If you do the opposite and you delay and extend, you also have the problems of of default uh, and people not being able to service it. So it is a, a real problem now for the Chinese of how they deal with the kind of COVID-19 problems, the shutdowns of economy uh, and the inability of these countries to service their debt. But while them still wanting to do that and influence and, and politically influence the world through its economic projects of peace, uh, and prosperity. But one thing which it, the article does point to, this could change the way in which China engages and move away from those kind of large infrastructure projects so much uh, and to move towards things like uh, technologically help or increasing levels of aid or food parcels, things like that, or, or what they termed the digital Silk Road to move towards technology to give these countries that you know, a leapfrog in uh, technological advancement to be able to do things themselves. Uh, and that could sh- signal a shift, one which moves away from the, the need to have, you know, things which have been shut down by COVID-19, these large infrastructure projects, large movements of, of people and experience, but could shift the, the, the point towards that. The, they have to be careful, a lot of these countries who they do have kind of uh, be given loans to because you can't just turn around to them if they default and go well we're going to take a load of your national assets that doesn't exactly build relationships and the whole point of the belt road initiative is to increase political influence to gun favors i mean if you're really cynical uh, of a western political opinion what you think this is really doing is saddling a load of countries with debt and then strong arming them to in your own political will, you know, in any sort of international body, the UN, well, US a favour because we built that port, US a favour because we built this new airport, if you're taking a very cynical view, but they do have to be careful in terms of opinion, you could have change in terms of governance, overthrow, you've seen uh, of, of governments, if that national feeling feels that the Chinese government has obviously settled it with debts, it's thrown the wool over its eyes, and now it's taking away national assets, it would really harm what China has built, tried to build up over a kind of goodwill with a lot of these countries. Um, but, but previously, I can't remember exactly which country, but I understand that China took ownership of a national airport in, in Central Africa when uh, that country defaulted. I believe this was about a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they've got that as an option to take physical ownership of these projects that they finance. But if, if you're suggesting that they now need a more sophisticated approach, what is it? Well, I guess it's more that, not that they need a more sophisticated approach, it's more the fact that because this is such an a huge problem economically for a lot of countries. It's not just there's one country which defaulted, it's that huge numbers of these countries now can't service the debt which they've they've started. So you can have them taking control of loads and loads of those projects and that could turn political opinion in the country against certain things. It is a line to walk between continuing to have the projects go ahead, continuing to influence people, influence countries, political opinion, but not to a way which economically obviously harms China, because that is obviously, yeah. you can't do that. Or the opposite of letting the projects just default or, or fall mm-hmm. away and have to... I know that there's other projects which have 
been taking control, such as um, Pakistan, as part of China's blue water policy, where they've built a new uh, port there, which is similar to try and emulate all the military bases that the US have around the world. Okay. It's, it's similar kind of things. Um, another book which was finished on, see, on um, geopolitics and the kind of geography of the world, and China has a policy now. You, you've seen that in terms of its uh, attitude towards Taiwan, a lot of the countries that, you know, it has that physical integrity now. It now moves towards uh, more of a blue water policy, that kind of naval power. You've seen that in the the islands in the South China Sea, that a lot of this all plays into political power, influence. It has that economic might, but now it's trying to exert it in other ways. That has been won through the Belt Road Initiative. You can't service so many debts if you have the kind of problem like this. You know, it's similar, I guess, to the kind of post-World War. We are talking about war debt post-Second World War and the Marshall Plan of the US investing money in, in Europe for rebuilding. It's similar now. Where how are they going to invest that money, continue projects that they have previously after what you know, British government could be seeing this virus debt as war debt. It is a, a kind of a war. The economic situation has, has caused that well. But there's loads of problems, complications of this whole uh, investment for the world. Who owns what debt? People can't service it. If you don't let them default, you don't get any of the money back. And then you probably have a load of bad feelings. So it kind of defeats the point of the goodwill and building up relationships with these countries. Um, but it's something which caught my eye uh, this week on, on things. Okay. But yeah, moving on swiftly to be much, we should talk about some of the um, the markets that we cover because uh, we're already 21 minutes into the podcast and we've not touched on a single market. Uh, Tom, why don't we come back to you and talk about what's happening in iron ore? Uh, yes. So um, iron ore this week has been uh, more fun and games. Um, the sort of in basic terms, we we've continued to to go up and up and up. Um, I think last time, this time last week, we were just around the hundred dollar mark uh, on the, on index. Uh, and yesterday, um, index was one hundred five spot one five. So a five dollar increase over the course of the week. Um, what we've seen this week has been um, some more rumours coming out of Brazil around Vale, uh, one of the world's biggest uh, iron ore producers and certainly the biggest producer in Brazil. Uh, rumours around mines being shut. Uh, uh, due to due to the coronavirus, um, <clears throat> completely shut. Uh, there's still court cases being fought around um, whether they're able to stay open or or, or are being forced to close. And you, know, you you hear the, the tiniest little rumor with regards to Vale at the moment can send the market absolutely haywire. So, the, I mean, the main story has has certainly been those sort of uh, Vale rumours that sort of drove the price up aggressively um, at the back end of last week and then and through the weekend. And it's sort of, it's corrected um, this 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 week a little bit. Um, so June futures are sort of 103-ish uh, as, as we're talking at the moment. So it's sort of come off since yesterday. There's been quite a lot of profit taking, um, I think in the last uh, last couple of days, with with the prices being so elevated, off the back of those Vale rumours, um, so so gains have just been locked in by traders in the last couple of days. There has also been some interesting um, sort of publications coming out of the the Dalian Commodity Exchange, the major onshore exchange in uh, in China, where you can trade uh, iron ore, um, sort of highlighting. Um, about uh, speculators um, and sort of uh, punishing illegal speculation 
Um, so so we, we haven't seen much more on that other than the official statement um, that you know, illegal speculation and rumour mongering to drive markets is, is illegal and will be punished. But the, the sort of rumour mill with regards to that is that some fairly major traders in China have been punished by the exchange and by the regulator. Um, but again, that is, that is rumour, um, but interesting nonetheless. Um, on a physical and fundamental side, um, in terms of the mill inventory uh, that we've talked about consistently when talking about iron ore, the steel mill inventory, um, it's increased for the first time in three months. Um, so there's there's been a slight inventory build in the last week um, after three continuous months of destocking. Um, and in terms of port trades uh, this week, uh, there's been very, very little activity uh, indicating that sort of physical traders are are not taking uh, taking on um, this upside movement and um, that, that we've seen in the futures and are, and are still wary of the physical uh, physical pricing. So it's it's hard to get a sort of real picture of what's going on. There's so much noise at the moment driven by the Varley rumours. Um, so the, the fundamentals seem to be somewhat out of the window. Uh, and every time we, we hear Varley news coming out of Brazil, it, it sort of spikes and then it comes back off and then we go again. So it, it, it's, it's, it's exhausting to say, uh, to say the least, but it's, it's, it seems very confused at the moment. And, and you know, that confusion that we talked about last week is being borne out on the freight as well. You know, the, the freight is reacting you know, quite differently um, to, uh, to, how the, to, to how the iron ore market is reacting to this news. Yeah, I guess let's pick up further on that because it is a kind of weird juxtaposition that one market is taking the news one way and the other market is taking completely the opposite way because cape rates are continuing to fly because of this demand of the Brazil trade, yet we talk about Vale closing mines. So it seems an odd kind of um, fight between these two perspectives. Yeah, it's a very strange, strange sort of uh, phenomenon that we're seeing. I, I, I think, you know, as we sort of touched on last week, uh, Brazil iron ore is a much higher quality um, generally uh, than anywhere else uh, in the world. So it produces a much higher iron content uh, and therefore less of it is required to be used. Um, in the production of steel. And with the price of you know, iron ore as high as it is, the demand for Brazilian tonnage is, is very strong. So anyone that can produce it and get it to port and, and get it out of Brazil will be aggressively doing so at the moment whilst the ports are still open and are still able to transact. So I think you know, the, the, this, this might be a case of sort of last, last hurrah um, before, before things start to, to shut down in, in Brazil in a, in a more sort of longer term basis um, because there, there is still volume coming out of there. And, that, and as you said, that is being reflected in the freight rates. But the iron ore market is, is very much pricing in the fact that you know, Vale tonnage is not going to be uh, there for the rest of the year, even though it's maintaining its, its, uh, its forecasts for the year. Uh, the market is clearly clearly saying we don't believe you, um, but but yeah, as you said on the, on the capes, the big ships that move the iron ore, they're they're still sort of <laughs> celebrating the fact that Vale is able to get stuff out of out of Brazil. Yeah, let's put some numbers on that. So, Spot Cape five TC average has doubled in in the week since we uh, last got the last podcast. So it was four thousand two hundred thirteen is now eight thousand fifty five. So just put some kind of perspective on that kind of uh, movement of what's happening on that news. And the same has happened, you know, looking at those front month contracts, July moved up to a region of 10,000 a week, 
uh, 13,700 this morning. So maybe it's something to look at some slightly more deferred months on that freight market to see what perspective uh, some of these dry freight guys are uh, are looking at for the kind of news that we're seeing of the Vale, the rumors of the Vale closures uh, for that. But let's finish quickly with some view on a, a more simple market to see what's happening, and, that, and that's the oil, which has hardly moved much. We're, we're still fairly unchanged, just above the $40 value on, on Brent. But we did see highs of 43, but we've kind of retreated back from that a little bit. And a lot of this has been off the extension of the cut agreement by a month, which is what the Russians were pushing for. I know the Saudis were pushing for a lot more. Um, but contrary to that, and a news story which seems totally against everything else is that while they've agreed to this extension to the, the cut, the Saudis have gone, you know, all those extra cuts that we were doing, uh, we're not going to do them anymore. So it's kind of, again, we talk about this kind of massaging of the figures of what's actually happening compared to what they're saying. So Saudis were doing extra cuts over and all uh, what they had agreed to help because they've been moaning about the compliance of a lot of other countries. So we're going to extend our cuts that we've agreed, but all those other ones we were doing, which is try to bring the market back in line, we're not going to do those. So in effect, Saudis are going to be producing more or are allowed to produce more. So an odd story, and I don't think that the market really knows. I think that it's a bit wary of that, and that's why we've seen that kind of pullback uh, as well. But again, if you're talking about uh, supply, if you're looking at what's happening in the US, the API has predicted quite a large build of 8.42 million barrels we've had seen back-to-back draws. So it doesn't seem to fit into this, this view that the kind of glut of oil supply is gone. I mean, the US has had a couple of builds uh, in a row now. So, you know, that kind of fight between supply and demand has not been won at all yet by the you know increasing demand. But we have seen China, we, we alluded it to it last week, China's demand coming back. We are now above the pre-crisis pre-crisis levels, which has obviously helped prices push through that $40 value. You look at these Chinese imports uh, in May, it was up to 11.3 million barrels per day. So uh, you see that, you see things coming back online for the oil in terms of demand, but have have a a cynical head on when looking at those um, OPEC supply figures. Uh, And also to just throw in the last bit of, of news in that market, there is a kind of storm coming through in, in the U.S. Gulf, uh, which has uh, caused a lot of problems in terms of supply, a lot of shutdown there in terms of U.S. offshore supply, uh, as well as refining. So it may be a situation with that API build that they're thinking they've shut down the refineries. They're not going to be drawing a lot of crude into to those, and therefore we're going to see see a build. It's not necessarily that oil demand is, is not returning or is a change situation or supplies too, too high. So those are the points there that we've seen. In just, the just, just anecdotally on the uh, on the glut, Chris. I mean, my my house in uh, in Singapore is not is not far. Uh, you can see over see over the water to some of the storage tankers, sort of five minute walk from my house, and uh, the tanks are awful. I mean, there there has been no no change in how they look uh, for the past three or four months. There does not appear to be any spare capacity out here. Um, and you know, in terms of floating storage that we talked about a few weeks ago. The, the bay is full of tankers just sat very low in the water, uh, clearly full. Um, so, you know, purely anecdotal, uh, I, I've, there is, there's no relief of uh, storage capacity out here by, by the looks of things. Yeah, so you've heard it there first. You've got the uh, Tom indicator that he's looked out near where his home is and he can tell you there's 
low laden vessels and all the storage is full. So uh, oversupplied. There we go. You've got it Cool. Well, we've uh, used up over half an hour for uh, our week. I hope that people have enjoyed our extra political chat this week and um, throwing that into what we're seeing in the markets. Been a little quieter, I guess, generally different feel of the markets. But um, again, iron all the black sheep of, of all the markets doing whatever it wants, doesn't care. Uh, but the kind of controversy between fighting points of, of view, be that the Vale news or kind of OPEC, but Saudi aren't going to cut. So some interesting things and we can see how that plays out again next week. So I hope that all our listeners join us again next week. And thank you to Alex and Tom. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thanks, Chris.